Let's go ahead and jump on in. Paragraph one, God has endowed human will with natural liberty and power to act on choices so that it is neither forced nor inherently bound or determined by nature to do good or evil. And so here in paragraph one, we just have a general statement concerning man's will. Just a general statement. And I want you to notice two things in the paragraph. First of all, it's going to make a statement about the author of our liberty. And it's going to make a statement, secondly, about the nature of our liberty. So by way of summary, notice that first word, God. It's the most important word in the article. We are what we are only in relation to God. That we are those who have been made in his image and all that we have, he has given to us. And so thus God, the creator, it says here, has endowed. Is that the word that you have? Excellent. Endowed man's will with natural liberty and the power to act on choice. Now here we're talking about men generally everywhere. Not men in his not man in his innocency, but man as a sinner. All men everywhere, paragraph one, is going to be true of. We see this in a number of different places. Consider some of the proof texts, James 1:14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Desires give rise within him and he freely acts upon those desires. Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. And so God commands Israel many of whom were unregenerate to choose and they freely did and they were accountable for what they ultimately chose, whether life or death, obedience or disobedience. And so God here is the author of man's liberty and the second half of that first paragraph points out the nature of man's liberty, that it is neither forced or is inherently bound or determined. The old confession says determined. And specifically, they're pushing against the idea of determinism, that you and I do what we do. We choose to do what we do, choose, because some external force is determined that we would do that, such that we have no real freedom. And so they're pushing back against the idea of determinism. So here in paragraph one, we just have a general statement. But moving into, into paragraph two, now we have the meat of the confession. And we're gonna see man's free will in his fourfold state in paragraphs two, three, four, and five. In that first state, we're gonna see man's will in creation. That is Adam's will. Secondly, we're gonna see man's will in relation to the fall in paragraph three, after the fall. And then we're gonna see man's will in relation to God's grace and redemption. And then finally, we'll see man's will in relation to his glorification. And four things are gonna stand out. These are all taken ultimately from Augustine. Then what we're gonna see in paragraph two is that man in a state of innocency is able to sin or not to sin. In other, words, in other words, his will is completely free. He can freely choose that which is good, even the good that would earn for himself and 
for all those who come from him, eternal life, entering into God's rest, or he can freely choose disobedience. And in that way, paragraph two says here that his will was unstable. That word unstable means that it was mutable, that he could, he could move from a state of innocency, that his nature could be changed. It was mutable. And so here it speaks to the power of man's will prior to the fall. Notice in paragraph two, though, that two things specifically are stated about man's will in the state of innocency. First of all, it says here that he has the freedom and the power to obey and please God. He could do so freely because he was innocent. And then secondly, as I've already pointed out, he was unstable or mutable. He had the potential to change the possibility of losing the ability, the, the freedom to choose good under salvation was present in their constitution, which is to say, this is important for the gospel, that when the Lord Jesus Christ came, what he ultimately came to do is not restore what Adam lost. He came to earn what Adam failed to earn and in so doing, to bring us into a state that was even greater than what Adam enjoyed. That the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't restoring unto us. He's not taking us back to the garden merely, back to a state of innocency. He's taking us to a state, as we'll see in paragraph four, of immutable, unchanging glorification. He's gonna take us from, we're gonna see from the beginning of the Bible, man being able to sin or not to sin to the end of the age in the glorification where now man is not able to sin at all it will be impossible for us to do so because we are united to the impeccable Christ. So paragraph two, we have man in a state of innocency. That is his instability. He is able to either sin or not sin. Passe peccare, passe non peccare. But now in paragraph three, we have man's second state. How do we understand the will of God, the free will of man rather, not the will of God, but the free will of man in the state of sin? That is his inability. Well, here we see because of the fall, whereas man was able to sin or not sin prior to the fall, now after the fall, man is not able not to sin. Not able not to sin. That is non passe, non pacare. It's impossible for him not to sin, to freely choose that which is good unto salvation. Notice what it says, paragraph three. Humanity, by falling into a state of sin, has completely lost all ability to choose any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. Thus, people in their natural state are absolutely opposed to spiritual good and dead in sin so that they cannot convert themselves by their own strength or prepare themselves for conversion. Notice a handful of things. First of all, paragraph three assumes the historicity of Adam. It assumes that man's fall from innocency and the spread of death and sin to all men everywhere is an historical fact. It's not Old Testament poetry merely. It's not a fable. It's not one creation myth among many. It is an historical fact because Adam represented mankind. But notice how it qualifies free will here. It's not saying that man can't do any good generally. We've noted this before, that sinners are able to do all kinds of good because of God's common grace, his law written on their hearts, 
And so it wouldn't be uncommon, for instance, for an unregenerate man to see a little old lady hobbling across a sidewalk, a bus driving at her full speed and a jump in the way of the bus to save a little old lady. Why? Because he did it to the glory of God? No, but because, man, because God's law is written on his heart and he's compelled by God's grace in those moments. His, his common grace, according to natural law, to do that which is good. This is the basis, isn't it? Romans 13, of all human government. That there is, in some semblance, under God's sovereign rule, the ability of unregenerate men to punish evil and to reward what is good. According to what? According to that natural law by which Gentiles do what the law of God commands. Romans chapter 2, 14 and 15. And so it's not talking about good generally. Look in paragraph three, how the good is being qualified. What does man have the inability to do? He cannot choose any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. That they are, next line, opposed to spiritual good. Why? Because they are dead in sin. What does this ultimately mean for, men, for mankind dead in sin? End of the paragraph. They cannot convert themselves and they cannot prepare themselves for conversion. They cannot save themselves and they cannot make them more savable. They are dead in sin, which is why when we get to the end or we get to the next, uh, the next chapter on effectual calling, it's gonna say the only way the man ultimately comes out of this state of being dead in sin to being alive in Christ is through the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. When you're dead, you need to be raised to life. And if you're spiritually dead, then you cannot freely choose that which would spiritually commend yourself to God unto salvation. God has to act on your behalf. And so man is not able in any way to choose any spiritual good. He's lost, that sinful man has not lost his ability to will, but to will good for God's glory. In other words, mankind has a sinful will that will always freely choose rebellion against the gospel, will always freely reject God's free offer of salvation in Christ, will freely choose to oppose God and his gospel and his people unless God in his grace gives him a new heart, regenerates him and calls him. So how should we think about it? Is this supported anywhere in scripture? We'll consider a handful of things. You can turn there with me if you like. Romans chapter five, verse six. We're considering man's inability. Romans chapter five, verse six. For while we were still weak, that word for weak is implying what we're saying here, total inability. While we still had no ability whatsoever to be godly, while we were still ungodly, at the right time, Christ died for us. Look over a handful of, verse, or a handful of chapters. Romans chapter eight, verse seven. For the mind that is set on the flesh, that is the unregenerate man, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Non posse, non pecare. Not able, not 
to sin. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 5, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. So this idea of being dead is unresponsive. We talked about this when we talked about the doctrine of sin. That if you were to go into a morgue and, and pull a corpse out of, his, out of his closet onto the tray and you were to go down to his foot and prick his foot with a pen or, or poke his fingers with a pen, would he respond or would he be unresponsive? That's a good image of the way that we are spiritually. That we are unresponsive to God's will unto salvation revealed in the gospel, centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, unless God brings us from death to life. Indeed, we cannot, Paul says. That's why he writes to Titus, Titus chapter three, verses three to five, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Produces life where there was once only death. And so here we have man in his third state or second state, that is the state of sin, total inability, not able not to sin. Still as a free will, freely chooses rebellion against God and his gospel. But now moving on to paragraph four, we see man in his third state, the state of grace, moving from inability to capability. Notice this, read with me. That when God converts sinners and transforms them into a state of grace, he frees them from their natural bondage to sin and by grace alone enables them to will and do freely what is spiritually good. Yet because of their remaining corruption, they do not perfectly nor exclusively will what is good, but also what is evil. And so whereas in our state of sin, we were not able not to sin, now in this state of grace, we are able not to sin. We have the ability to say no to sin. We have the ability to choose righteousness instead of sin because of God's regenerating power and the work of the Holy Spirit. So whereas the previous paragraph addresses man apart from grace, here in paragraph four, it's addressing man and his will in relationship to God's saving grace. That his will has been freed from bondage to sin such that now he is able to freely choose something other than sin. And so now we're turning. The chapter is turning a corner. In paragraphs one, two, and three, it's considering mankind generally. But now in paragraph four, we're considering those who have been converted, God's elect, those saints that have been converted by his grace. And it says here at the beginning of the chapter that God is the one that converts sinners. 
Simply, if paragraph three concerning our inability is true, then this proposition, God converts sinners, necessarily follows. If man cannot convert himself, then how can man be converted unless, paragraph four, God converts him? And what does that look like? It says here that in converting him, moving them into a state of grace, freeing them from slavery or bondage to sin, his grace alone enables them to will and to do what is spiritually good. That entails an ability to please and obey God with the help of the Holy Spirit. This is all by cooperating grace, so to speak, empowering grace from the Holy Spirit who's not only freed us to choose the good, but strengthens us to do it. This is really good news. John 8, 36, concerning our freedom from bondage, that if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Or consider Colossians 1, 13, that you and I have been delivered from the domain of darkness. And, we've tra- and God's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. But when we consider how his grace alone enables us freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good, well, then we might consider a handful of passages. Does anybody want to take a shot at the fruit of the spirit? Galatians 5, 22 to 25. I won't put you on the test. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so if we live by the Spirit, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the good fruit produced in good trees that have been regenerated by the grace of God that looks a whole lot like Jesus. It's the Spirit of Christ producing the character of Christ and the people of Christ. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's not ultimately the fruit of our own willing. It's the fruit of God's grace in Christ given to us through the Spirit as His means of grace does its work in our lives, freeing us to choose those things which are in keeping with the Spirit as opposed to those things which are according to the flesh. Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So God is working out of us that which in salvation he has already worked in us. It is all by grace. And that's the reality of our life on this side of the resurrection. And yet praise God in reading Romans 7, this is not as good as it gets. Romans 6 tells us that we have been freed in Christ from the very bondage of sin. Its penalty has been paid. Its power has been broken. But we look forward to a day as we groan in a Romans 7 sense for that Romans 8 moment when the very presence of sin is done away with once and for all. Not just the power of sin, not just the penalty of sin, but even the very presence of sin and its effect on our lives. Paragraph 5, only in the state of glory is the will made perfectly and unchangeably free toward good alone. 
So whereas paragraph three denies that unconverted sinners do evil only, they can do some good. Paragraph four denies that converted saints do good only in this life on this side of the resurrection because we still sin. Well, paragraph five communicates to us an eschatological reality, an end-time reality consummated in our glorification where we've gone from, not, from able not to sin in the Spirit's power to now not able to sin. It'll be a foreign language to us. It won't even be a distant memory to us. It'll be utterly removed And the only thing in the new creation that will remind us of our former state will be the wounds on our glorified Savior's body. But there won't be anything in us. There won't be anything in his church. There won't be anything in his creation that is corrupted in the very least by the stain of sin. So consider this, in the first and third state, the state of innocency and grace, man's will is beautiful. Man's innocency is freed to choose good, spiritually speaking. Man in a state of grace is, is now renewed unto freedom to choose freely that which is good spiritually. But here in the fourth state of glorification, we will only choose that which is righteous all the time without exception, and we will be able to do no other. Non posse pecare not able to sin. And so you realize then, don't you? As I said at the beginning of this chapter, that the Lord Jesus Christ did not come to just take us back to the garden. He came to bring us not merely back to a state of innocency, but to a state of glorification that was held out before Adam that he failed to earn, that now the better Adam, the second Adam, the last Adam has earned for us and freely offers us such that in him we anticipate that day where we are glorified and we have not like Adam, mutable, changeable wills able to freely choose that which is good, but something even better, that we are confirmed in the immutability of righteousness, of Christ's righteousness forever without any spot or stain of sin corrupting God's new creation. That's ultimately our hope is not to go back where Adam was but to go forward and hope to what the second Adam is bringing. That is, in a nutshell, the chapter on man's free will in his four states.